Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Wow! Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. We used to think that you could use spend your way out of a recession and increase employment by cutting taxes and boosting government spending. I tell you in all candor that that option no longer exists. And I say to our country, our great country, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of those who tell us that we cannot run our affairs, that we have not got the ingenuity to mobilize our resources and overcome our economic problems. Of course we have. Margaret Thatcher wins on Thursday. I warn you not to be young. I warn you not to fall ill. And I warn you not to grow old. This week, we have another bonus episode for you, an interview with Labour's Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury, Pat McFadden, one of the most important members of Keir Starmer's government-in-waiting, the man tasked with making sure his sums add up. But also, Pat is one of the very few people in Parliament today to have had a front-row seat in the last 40 years of the Labour Party's history. Pat first joined the Labour Party in the 1980s when the party was recovering from its defeats under James Callaghan and Michael Foote, the first two people we heard at the start of that montage there. When Kinnock took over the party, Pat became a committed supporter, watching in awe as his hero took on the militant tendency at the party conference in Blackpool in 1985. The following year he became chair of Scottish Labour students and so began a lifetime in Labour politics. First as a researcher for the Scottish First Minister Donald Dewar, then an advisor to the Labour leader John Smith, and finally into number 10 with Tony Blair. Ask me my three main priorities for government, and I tell you, education, education, and education. Pat was elected to Parliament in 2005, just in time to see the party lose power in 2010 and begin its long period out of office, moving steadily to the left and back to just the type of politics he had hated in the 1980s. Keir Starmer's decision to bring Pat back into the fold, therefore, is a clear indication of the direction Starmer wants to take the party. Pat is an out-and-out Blairite ultra, outspoken in his belief that the Corbyn years were a disaster for the party and which Starmer is absolutely right to dismantle. I actually bumped into Pat at Tony Blair's Future of Britain conference a couple of days ago, where he turned up to watch his old boss interview his new boss on stage. 
For Pat and others, this was a long overdue moment of rapprochement between the two leaders, a signal that the party was finally ready for power. To many others, of course, Pat and his boss are learning the wrong lessons from history, trying too hard to copy the Blairite playbook when the world has moved on and a different type of politics is needed. I wanted to talk to Pat about all of this and his understanding of modern Labour Party history, starting, of course, with that famous Kinnock speech in 1985. I'll tell you what happens with impossible promises. You start with far-fetched resolutions. They're then pickled into a rigid dogma, a code. And you go through the years sticking to that. Outdated, misplaced, irrelevant to the real needs. And you end in the grotesque chaos of a Labour Council, a Labour Council hiring taxis to scuttle around the city handing out redundancy notices to its own workers. So that's Neil Kinnock's famous speech in 1985. I could see you smiling as you were watching that, Pat. Tell me about that speech and why you think it's so important. That speech is one of the earliest formative political moments of my life. I was 20 years old, a student at Edinburgh University. I knew I was Labour. I was so part of the Labour Party. And at that time, there was a struggle going on between... Neil Kinnock and those who supported him and the militant tendency in the Labour Party. And the speech was the moment that struggle crystallised and people really had to choose a side. I was already a Neil Kinnock supporter anyway, but to see him take on those elements with such wonderful eloquence and passion and power is a moment that people like me and people of my generation who were interested in politics at the time will never forget. And you could argue it was the moment really that Labour came back from the brink. The long road to recovery really began. And I'll always admire Neil for doing that and for the part that he played. And it took some time, but for the part that he played in the election victories that were to come along later. So it's a big moment for somebody of my age. Were you in the hall? No, I was watching it on television. Hairs on the back of your neck. Yeah, it was hairs on the back of my neck then and hairs on the back of my neck today (laughs) when I listen to it again. What I think is quite interesting listening to that speech now and what he's saying is how resonant it is to what you and Rachel Reeves are trying to do in opposition, you're saying that we, we can't make unfunded promises. We have to be trusted by the voters. Otherwise, we go down a bad path, as you would see it. I think about history as, in some senses, a competition between those who think of it as one long kind of upward trajectory or arc of progress in one way or another. And those who think of it as a kind of tidal, like the, these challenges never go away. They're always the same. And listening to that speech in 1985, it makes me lean towards the latter in that like these debates never leave us. You know, we've just been through the years of Jeremy Corbyn and now we're into the years of Keir Starmer. And that same tension is still there within the Labour Party. Yeah, and it's always ebbed and flowed, I think, for that speech is almost 40 years ago now. And it's ebbed and flowed throughout that time and probably before it too. Politics is many things. It isn't just writing a sort of wish list of policies and sending it to Santa. There are other tasks involved before you get 
permission from the public to do that. I always say to people, for us to be taken seriously, there are two essential tasks in particular that have to be passed before people will really give us a hearing on on policy or what we want to do. The first is, can you be trusted with the defence of the realm? And that's ebbed and flowed in labour over the years. We had the CND period in the 1980s, and you had the Corbyn period more recently, when clearly we were failing that test, and we weren't trusted with the defence of the realm. And my voters in Wolverhampton South East were very ready to tell me that in, right. in recent elections. And the second test is, can you be trusted with people's money, with the public finances? And that's the test that Rachel Reeves and I are most focused on. I think we have made enormous and really important changes on the defence of the realm and our position on Ukraine and NATO and so on. But I say to, to my colleagues and say to the public as well in any media interview, we know we have to be trusted with the public finances. And if we're not, it almost doesn't matter what you say about policy because you won't get a hearing for it and people will not believe that you can do what you want or if you are going to do it they might think the consequences of you doing it are not going to be very good it's an essential test and it's a dereliction of duty to the public to ignore that test maybe that creates two types of labor politician the ones that are content just to be loved by the party and preach to the choir and bask in that you can have a very comfortable life doing that but i've kind of always admired the politicians more who aren't content with that and who want to put in the hard yards to get a hearing with the broader public. I think that is, that's the real test. Hey, it's Tom here. I just wanted to say how thrilled Helen and I are that you've chosen to listen to These Times podcast, along with tens of thousands of others. What you might not know, however, is that over at unheard.com, there's a whole host of content each day spanning politics, culture, ideas and analysis from some of the biggest names in journalism from around the world. Myself, I've written about everything from the war on inflation to the war in Ukraine and have some really big pieces coming up, which I think you're really going to like. There really has been no better time to join us. And by using the promo code THESE TIMES, all in caps, when you sign up today at unheard.com forward slash join, you'll get three months free. You can't say fairer than that. That's three months free if you use the code these times when you subscribe at unheard.com forward slash join. We'll come back to today's politics towards the end of this chat, but let's go back to 1985 then for a brief period. Because Neil Kinnock actually is somebody who perhaps embodies a bit of both of what you were just saying there. He himself went on a journey. If you go back and read the history books of that period, you've got Neil Kinnock, the guy from the left, the Eurosceptic, who was, you know, a thorn in the side for some of the Labour leadership early on. And then you've got the Neil Kinnock, who is giving that speech in 1985 and becomes your hero and, and many of your generation's hero. It's interesting to reflect on the fact that some politicians go through that movement. Have you gone through it yourself or did you always feel like that? It's interesting that you were a Kinnock supporter before his speech in 1985. Yeah, I was. For example, the, the militant tendency were around when I was just starting out in politics and I was never attracted to it. So, yeah, what, it Why a, not? It was some of the things Neil was saying in that speech, the rigid dogma, the sloganising, you know, I, I, it just never really appealed to me. It's very easy to just adopt a set of things and then not have to think 
and just stick to them for the rest of your life. And some people will do that. But I think the the more difficult, more challenging, but ultimately more rewarding thing is to contemplate how the world's changing and how you adapt to change. And if you look at those changes, we had fought the 1983 election on a policy of being withdrawing from the European Union, European community as it was then, and unilateral nuclear disarmament. And Neil changed both of them. And he was a firebrand of the left. Look, he was a wonderful speaker and something, you know, that oratorical skill is really rare in politics. He had it by the bucket load. I really admire him for it. So he had extra skills, but the oratorical stuff on its own wouldn't have been enough if he wasn't prepared to make the changes. And he was prepared to make the changes. And I think by the end of his period, when he'd lost in 1992, the people around him, they weren't saying, oh, the Labour Party's lost because it's changed too much. Right. It had changed too little. That's not a criticism of Neil at all. I think he moved mountains, but we had to go further. That's interesting because by 2010, for instance, Neil Kinnock had thought that the Labour Party had moved too far. And now it supported Ed Miliband from memory. What was his phrase? We've got our party back. So, you know, your hero had, had gone on one journey at the start of his career and then had gone on a bit of a different journey after that. Maybe we should ask him today. <laughs> see, what, see what he'd say today. I don't know. Has he lost the party again? Uh, I don't think you'd think that. I, I don't know. You'd have to. You'd have to ask him. There's a serious point in here, though. I guess because the the challenge that I suspect the left of the party would make to you would be that, in a sense, your politics haven't changed either. Like you, you were instinctively opposed to militant in the '80s and have stuck with with your politics from that point on. They might say, and people do say, don't they, that the party now is stuck in a kind of Blairite perspective. And actually, you know, as you say, the world has moved on. The party went between 2010 and 2019, where it more and more rejected its period in government. And by the end of the period, had nothing good to say about it at all. And it was an enormous strategic misjudgment. It meant lessons were unlearned about how change was made. It meant good things were unspoken about because the whole thing was regarded as a sort of at best unseemly and at worst a sort of period of betrayal. And I think it was the biggest mistake we made after we left office. No government's perfect, but I think the return that Keir Starmer's made to taking pride in that government has been really important, both in changing the Labour Party and in communicating with the public. And this gets us to a way of thinking about this period of, say, 40 years that you've been in politics from the early 80s until now. And there are some in the Labour Party who, and we've spoken about this before, who would think of that period as one long period of failure, of sort of Thatcherite failure. Neoliberalism is the ideology that destroyed British industry across the Midlands and the North. It's the ideology that ruins communities and ruins lives. And it's the ideology that this government is still absolutely wedded to. They seem to be more interested in destroying the presence of the left in the party than getting a Labour government. And you think of it very differently. You think of it as multiple periods within those 40 years, some of which you opposed the 
conservative periods and that Labour was a challenge to that. And actually what's happened is a failure of politics since 2010. So you, you break up that period into, into different eras. Yeah, I do. I think this stuff about 30 years, 40 years of neoliberalism or whatever is bad history and worse politics because of some of the reasons we were speaking about a minute ago. It stops you taking any pride, credit and lessons from good things that you've done and you just don't talk about them to the electorate. I also think it's lazy in terms of looking at the differences between different governments over that period and I don't want to go through that kind of what did the Romans ever do for us list but there is plenty in Labour's period of government from the changes in child poverty to the transformation in the NHS to the school reforms that drove opportunity to international leadership on aid, trade and debt to the Good Friday Agreement that are things that people should take real pride in and to dismiss it all as 40 years of neoliberalism is I think there's an arrogance about it but even more I just think it's bad history and worse politics. Just to go back to that then so Given that times have changed, the economic challenges have changed, 2008 crash happened just after Tony Blair left office and has changed politics perhaps permanently. You know, perhaps you can't even understand Brexit without the 2000, thinking about the 2008 crash. You can't think of the challenges to the public services today without thinking about that and the austerity that followed. When you look back at that period of time of those 13 years of Labour government, and obviously you think back with pride, do you think back and think of strategic misjudgments at all during that time, which you wish Labour had done differently, thought about something differently? Obviously, in foreign policy terms, you you must accept that to some degree. No government's perfect. And if I look at the area I represent, my constituency is Wolverhampton, southeast in the black country. And I look at that period, there was a great renewal of the public sphere. The schools got better, the NHS got better, as I say, child poverty decreased and so on. What there wasn't a renewal enough of was the private sphere. And most people in the end work in private sector jobs. And so you have in in constituencies like that, people earning significantly below the English average wage. And so if I was keeping score, I would say, you know, what I wish we'd been able to do more of in that period was improve the prospects for people in the in the private sphere, get more private sector jobs into areas like that that were good, well-paid jobs. And I've always been, you know, I was a minister in the Department of Business in the third term of that government from 2007 until it left office in 2010. And I was very much an active industrial policy person that that didn't believe leave it all to the market, that believed the state has a really important active role in industrial policy and trying to bridge the gaps where the market won't go itself to, to trying to get investment and jobs into areas that have maybe suffered from deindustrialization and so on. So if I was keeping score it would be around that territory where I wish we'd done more. Let's dig into that a little bit, because I think this is one area, the north-south divide essentially is what we're talking about, where the sort of deep historic trends seem to run through all governments. You could go all the way back to the 60s and the 70s and run it all the way through to today and say that no government really has been able to deal with this core problem in the 
British economy. And perhaps you could say it's impossible. There's a there's a great little book called the, the Shortest History of England, in which it sort of takes back the north-south divide to the Roman times and says, you know, it's there in the soil. You know, there's not much you can do. And what happened was we found coal under our feet in the in the north and that changed things for a brief period of time. And then as you say, today, the North and the Midlands of England are actually, they're poor by European standards. They're not just struggling compared to the southeast of England. Birmingham is nowhere near as wealthy as Munich or Amsterdam or even Dublin. And this goes for all of Britain's great cities, Liverpool, Belfast, where you grew up in, in Glasgow. None of these cities are succeeding on North American or European terms. Is there not just an element where you think that it's just not possible to bridge that divide? I think that's a bit defeatist. But London is a global city-state with certain enormous advantages. It's got good schools. It's got lots of graduates. It's got a very diverse population. It's got this creative juice of some kind that people like to innovate and, and create here. It's got this globally significant financial services sector. It's an artistic and you know creative industries hub. London's got this fantastic set of advantages. And I don't like to set other parts of the country against London because London's a UK asset and we should see it as such. What I believe you can do and you should do is to use policy, use the power of government, use the power of decision-making to make the best future possible for people in other areas. Now, as I say, there are kind of two sides to that. There's the public sphere, which we've been speaking about a bit, and that makes you make sure you've got a good public services that are there. But I think it's really important that a government has an active policy on investment and change to get good jobs into an area. Things do change, and economies change. There are new things coming to us where I think we really should bear that in mind. Most obviously, the green transition. This is going to require lots of changes around the country. There'll be different ways of generating power. There'll be different ways of transporting ourselves. We announced a policy the other day to have GB Energy based in Scotland, for example. You can do things where the drivers of these changes don't all have to be in one place, and you can make sure that they are spread around the country. So I think there's opportunities there. I would hope to say the same about new technology. We're going to have big technological changes in how services are delivered, how things are done. You know, We're probably in the foothills of what AI can do. Let's try and make sure that this goes around the country. It doesn't all happen yeah. in one place. I suppose I feel slightly cynical about it, that putting GB energy in, in Scotland sounds like a sensible thing to do for the union. Putting the Treasury North in Darlington, where I'm from, sounds like a sensible thing for a Tory government to do to prop up its red wall voters. Do you think Labour have abandoned towns like Darlington? I've just been in the market hall. Have you been in there? It's like a ghost town. It's disgusting. I like Darlington as a shopping town. I've come here for Christmas shopping and I've been in there. <laughs> and Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
Alright, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. But... We, we both know that they're not going to fundamentally shift the basic nature of the economy. You look at London and all those things you mentioned, it also has Oxford and Cambridge within, you know, an hour. It has Heathrow, which is essentially Britain's, well, it's, it's the Europe's hub airport. It's Britain's port now. It's kind of replaced Liverpool or Glasgow in economic importance. It has all of the museums. It has all the cultural centres. Nobody's talking about shifting any of these things to really transform the nature of the economy? Well, headquarters alone don't do it. I accept that. But these changes are, are going to be made. For example, if we're, if we're going to have new battery factories around the country, they're not all going to be in London. No. They can be in other parts of the country. If we're going to have significantly more wind power, we can have centres of that around the country. This is not just about someone in an office somewhere, directing things somewhere else. These are things that will happen in different parts of the country. And the point I would make is the market alone won't do it. So you really need a government that wants to push and drive that. Now, if we fast forward 10 years, 20 years, we were sitting around this table again and you said to me, but London is still, you know, <laughs> I expect London will still be the, the preeminent place in the UK, but I think there's a lot that we can do to give hope and opportunity to places that haven't had enough of it in recent years. Do you think, though, just as we said, your position as a future position, you hope, as Chief Secretary to the Treasury, ensuring that the sums add up, ensuring that you're not making pledges that you can't deliver, do you think there is some kind of conflict with the scale of the challenge and the size of the state that's going to be necessary, the level of intervention in the economy that's necessary, that actually we're now into a place where we need more radicalism? Well, we go back to the two tests that I spoke about. There's an inescapable duty. Look, time after time, Labour's just racked up a bunch of spending promises and got walloped in the election, if I can put it bluntly. <laughs> and that's the kind of Labour Party the Tory wants to fight. And I don't think that we've got a historic duty to give our opponents the kind of opponent that they want in a very comfortable election for them. And they do it like clockwork. And why should we walk into that when we know it's happened to us so many times before. There's also the reality of the public finances right now. They are stretched. Yeah. You know, we have spent a significant amount of money having to cope with COVID and having to support people through an energy crisis. And that's been expensive for the country. And you can't, you can't just look the other way and pretend that hasn't happened. So there's a duty on us, a duty to the public to be responsible about these things. And it's, it's an, in my view, it's an inescapable duty. But that doesn't mean that all that's left to you is to manage decline. I was going to say, it feels like the 70s. And there are Labour leaders who have also delivered 
difficult messages to the public who and that and that doesn't necessarily lead to popularity either there was James Callahan in the late 70s who said you know we've run out of money we're living beyond our means we need to rein it in we all need to start being more productive that's the reality the wealth must be created before it's distributed on the question of public expenditure you know we've been not creating sufficient wealth as fast as we've been distributing it and it kind of feels that we're back there you know you look at the figures about inflation about debt so we're over a hundred percent of debt for the first time since 1969 i think it is we it's even earlier but yeah. is it even <laughs> earlier oh great so we're indebted we are borrowing every year on top of that inflation is at what eight percent and we don't have much money to do. Labour Party itself, you're having to cut back on pledges because of the state of the economy. How are we not just going to manage decline from this well, position? The point I was going to make was your responsibility is an inescapable duty, as I said, but it should be matched with ambition. I simply don't believe that all that's left to us is just not overspending. And politics is more than an accounting exercise. It's mapping a path to the future and leading the country through change. And you might be constrained by circumstances in how much you can do. But what's really important is to look into the future, see the changes that are coming and try to make the most of them. And whether that's the green transition, whether it's the application of new technology, whether it's reform of public services, the caring challenge that faces us and so on. You've got to do that with all these things. So I don't believe that economic responsibility equals managing decline. I think it is an essential underpinning to the ambition that you have. And that's the way I view it. But I am for, within that framework, a really ambitious, active government. But it's tough for people right now because... They've got that inflation in their food bills and their everyday spending and their mortgage rates have gone up too. So there's a real squeeze going on people right now. Before we wrap this interview up, interested there in what you were saying about politics not being an accounting exercise. There are emotions in there. There are sense of loyalties and identities. And one of the great challenges that any government's going to have, you talked about the defence of the realm. One of the defences of the realm actually today is not just militarily it's can you keep the country together you know can you can you maintain the union you know britain is probably or i think undoubtedly the most fragile country in europe probably in the developed world in terms of we have a unique union where you can leave many countries that's not the case it's illegal you see what happens in spain or in evidently the united states you've got an interesting backstory in that you're from glasgow you're i presume you're sort of emotionally committed to the union through your politics but your parents are also from donegal and i wonder what do you feel do you feel irish do you feel scottish do you feel british do you feel all three at the same time and can you feel all three at the same time or is that the sort of the beauty of being british I don't know if this phrase originated with Michael Ignatieff. I think he's the first one I heard saying it was, the tyranny of nationalism is that it forces you to choose. And we have multiple aspects to our identity. Look, I'm a British politician. I'm a Scottish person, obviously. I grew up in Glasgow. But yes, I've got Irish parents. They were Gaelic speakers from County Donegal. And that's part of my family's story. And that place has a very special place in my family's heart. Also an Ulsterman. <laughs> yeah. And politics in recent years in the wider sweep of things, in some ways can be seen as a battle between nationalism and economics, or perhaps identity and economics. That played out in the Brexit referendum. And you could say nationalism won because of the vote. 
and somebody described the Scottish independence referendum to me as Braveheart versus KPMG. <laughs> and it's a bit cruel, but it, it can sometimes... You were on the side of KPMG. Like that. And we've seen the power of, of nationalism, both in Scotland and in the Brexit referendum in, in recent years. I sort of feel that with what's going on right now, and the cost of living crisis, the inflation, the mortgage rises, the challenges facing the country, that at the next election, economics might take centre stage in the political debate in a way that hasn't happened in recent elections when a lot of that identity and nationalist politics was being played out. The debate may be, how can we become economically stronger as a country? How can we make people better off? And it isn't like flicking a switch. Kirstam is absolutely right to have said, look, the state of things is such that there will be things, good labour things, that we won't be able to do as quickly as we liked because you can't escape the economic position the country's in. But our challenge is to understand that position and offer people hope and a way through it. And I think if that's the debate, that's one that we are looking forward to having. Yeah. Doesn't nationalism come to the fore when economics fails? Again, going back to 2000 and 2008, that's the reality, isn't it? That there was a failure of economics. People were feeling poorer because they were poorer. And so that they, there were fewer resources going around and they, they rejected the system that had made them poorer. Yeah, and, you know, there was understandably a lot of anger after that. And then I think in the post-2010 period, the country made some decisions that exacerbated that and people were losing their public services. I saw it in Wolverhampton, the local budget being gouged by the central government. I'm not sure that was the wisest thing in terms of people's own well-being or the political path that the country then took. I don't think it was. And... You then had the campaign that we've had, I should say, for the sake of clarity, we're not going to rerun this. Right. I talked about not giving your opponents the election they wanted. Well, you know, we're not going to rerun this. It's our task now. We're out now. We're out now permanently. Well, it's our task to make the best future we can outside. Look, we would want a different kind of relationship with our European neighbours compared to certainly the leading Brexiteer voices that want to blame Europe forever. And first it was Brussels, now it's the blob. Blame somebody, right. find somebody else. You know, they, they managed to combine an enormous sense of entitlement with a total unwillingness to ever take responsibility for anything. <laughs> so we want a different kind of relationship. The invasion of Ukraine has put some of that in relief. These are European democracies that share many of our values. Doesn't mean we have to rerun the Brexit argument, but you can have an adult and positive relationship with your neighbours. You're still your biggest market, and the country's on your doorstep. I kind of think of Keir Starmer as the as Labour's Robert Peel. He opposed a giant constitutional reform, and now it's his job to bed it in. Yeah, but one thing that's true in politics is you do not get to choose the circumstances in which you take office or in which you are given the responsibility of power. History dictates those circumstances. So sometimes it may be economically good times, sometimes it may be economically tough times, other things like that too. The task of leadership is to govern in the circumstances that history gives you and then change them for the better. But I'm afraid getting to pick them isn't an option. (laughs) Well, on that note, we'll leave it because a perfect combination of politics and history, which is what this podcast is all about. Pat McFadden, thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Labour's Pat McFadden, shedding light on the way Keir Starmer's Labour Party thinks about politics and history, and therefore how it's likely to govern, if 
and potentially when it takes office. Pat is one of the very few people to have had a front row seat during the last 40 years of Labour Party history, as we've discovered, being both a witness and a combatant to the party's great battles with militant and Corbynism. Pat's view of history, therefore, is almost by definition a partial one. His view is that of the Labour right, which holds almost as a point of faith that in order to win power, the party must first win the public's trust on tax and spend. This is what Blair did in 1997, and so it is what Keir Starmer is trying to do again now, as we see most clearly with this ongoing row over child benefits. It's why Blair promised to stick to Tory spending plans in 1997, and why Starmer is promising to keep Tory policies today, even though many of his party disagree with them. Pat believes that this is both right and necessary, and that the hard left of the party, as he would see it, stands almost as a permanent threat to Labour's ability to win power. To many like Pat, the left is almost a reflection of the same kind of rigid dogma as the right. Both are seen, in their view, as expressions of populism. It's not for me to say whether Pat or the Labour right are right or wrong in this analysis, or whether times have changed and something altogether more expansive and ambitious is required in politics and economics to get us out of this mess. Time will tell. In truth, though. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Such arguments can never be won or lost by an election victory here or there. They're the very bones of politics. Where I do think the Labour right needs to reflect a little more deeply is on the lessons it needs to draw from its failures in office, not just its successes. Iraq, of course, but the regulation of the city before 2008. More generally, centrists from both parties must reflect a bit more deeply on the failures of the old world that came crashing down after 2008. It came crashing down in stages, really. and This is the world that voters rejected in the Brexit referendum in 2016. If Starmer gets into office with Pat taking up his position in the Treasury, Labour will have the most difficult and overflowing intray of any government probably since Callaghan took over from Wilson in 1976. It will be a very different world from the one Tony Blair inherited in 97. It'll be interesting to see how they cope, if indeed they get there. <laughs> 